0: Good morning, and uh, we're glad you're here today <clears throat> to watch my voice. I guess I was preaching too hard the first service, um, but um, my name is Tom Nelson. We're really glad you're here today, and uh, hope you enjoy this uh, summer season, and we hope you sense the presence of Christ here. We are uh, in a text that truly is uh, an extraordinary text, and I was reminded after the first service how only the Holy Spirit can open our eyes to the beauty and wonder of this text. So uh, we're dependent on him, and wherever you are this morning, our prayer as we open God's word is that God would speak to each one of us. Uh, This truly is an extraordinary text. Well, we all have uh, sort of those moments in life that we call the aha moments, right? Sometimes they're grand and, well, grandiose. Sometimes they're sort of mundane, uh, recently, I was getting ready to enter in a new blog in my or new blog entry in my blog. And uh, I opened up my computer, went to my blog site, and there it was in front of me a brand new dashboard. Now, you have to know something about me uh, when people move my cheese like that. <laughs> I, I'd rather have a root canal. I haven't had one yet, but you know, it was like, whoa, this is different. So I tried to make my way through this new dashboard design and figure this thing out. And uh, so I'm working at my computer, you know, sort of muttering under my breath, good grief. I just got used to the old one and someone changed it. And I started pulling my hair out because I couldn't figure it out. I just couldn't figure out what was going on, you know. And so one of our fellows uh, happened to walk by my office door. (laughs) Yes, I believe in the providence of God and uh, his mercy, and uh, so I said, help, and uh, sort of like 911, uh, he came in, looked over my shoulder, I'm not kidding, he said, oh, it was all perfect like that, just two little strokes of his finger, and uh, all of a sudden, everything came clear to me, and I just had this natural reaction to him, ah, I get it now. See, we all have those reactions, even in the small things of life, You know, when we have this flash of insight, this moment of understanding we missed before, sometimes those aha moments, you know, uh, find their way into our lives in different ways. Sometimes it is, you know, a computer glitch or a computer software thing we figure out. Sometimes it's not just that, it's, you know, if you are sort of challenged in math, and at school, you know, you have this big math problem, uh, and all of you've been wrestling. All of a sudden, you get it, right? And students here in class, and all of a sudden, it comes clear to you. Oh, now I get it! And there's sort of this joy that washes over you when an aha moment takes place. Sometimes you've had the experience uh, where you wrestle with a problem. Maybe it's in your business, a product, a new idea, a strategy, and. Uh, You've been wrestling with it. Maybe all of a sudden when you're least experienced, oh, I got it. It's a flash of insight, a moment that changes your business, changes how you do things. Sometimes it's a new athletic skill. You know, as a wrestler, I remember uh, getting this one skill down, and when I got it, it's like, yes, I just felt like Superman, actually. Uh, or it's a musical skill or a job skill. We all have those moments when we go, aha, I get it. Now, a lot of times those are sort of small things, right, in life. I mean, they're not so consequential. But there are times when an aha moment turns into a defining moment, when traces of the transcendent or patches of God-light confront us, and our lives are truly changed by this flash of insight. Now, this morning's text, as you've heard it read and as we enter into it, is really one of the biggest aha moments in all of the Old Testament. It's a burning bush moment, but it's not Moses who encounters it. It's Isaiah the prophet. So if you brought your Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Now, let's enter into this marvelous text. And if you've been with us for a while, you know this year, we started in January, right? Those who've been around for a while, in our open here journey. And we went walking our way through the Bible from Genesis, and we're going to end Revelation Yes, at the end of December. Can you hang in there with us? It's kind of fun, isn't it? So now we come to the section called the Prophets, and we'll be this summer unpacking these amazing, amazing books. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about the Old Testament prophets. Sometimes, actually, the prophets get rather long-winded. Sometimes they're rather hard to read and long, and in Isaiah, Isaiah is 66 chapters long, (laughs) That's for the stout of heart, isn't it? Sixty-six chapters. When you think about it, it's the only other book in the Bible that's longer is the Psalms. So preachers are not the only ones who are long-winded. Prophets were too. But it's interesting that Isaiah is viewed by the finest literary scholars and Hebrew scholars as the pinnacle, the prime, the cream of the cream of all Old Testament prophets. So we'll get to dive in this week, next week, a couple weeks, into this amazing text. It is viewed as extraordinary in its literary artistry, both in its prose and poetry. And it is amazing. Truly, we are in some extraordinary space as we enter this text. It is extraordinary ground. I'll never forget uh, one of my greatest memories, Uh, during my graduate work, was studying a graduate program in Israel. And uh, I remember visiting a place. Now, kids, you just got to trust me uh, that it's like visiting Disney World for professor geek types. Okay? Pick a Space Mountain, okay? This is my Space Mountain moment. It's called the Book of the Shrine, or the Shrine of the Book. My, My bad. Sorry my brain, the Shrine of the Book. It's a marvelous museum in Jerusalem, and it's designed after the Dead Sea Scrolls, how they were found. This is what it looked like, the jars in which they were found. And I'll never forget walking into this museum and prominently displayed is a portion of the scroll of Isaiah. A scroll that dates back 2,300 years I was like this close to it, and I had goosebumps. It's an amazing text, and we're just a few hundred years, this copy from the original. Isaiah, the scroll, and the scrolls was written in the 8th century B.C. That's a long time ago. And God's message to Isaiah was a sobering one. Prophets often had to deliver truths that weren't easy They were inconvenient, hard-hitting. And one of the things as you walk with us through Isaiah, and as you read and listen to open here, I want you to notice a refrain that many prophets use and Isaiah really uses. You ready? The phrase is, Woe to those. Woe to those. Woe to those. You go, enough of the woe. But it's interesting in chapters 1 through 5 of Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet focuses on the message to God's covenant people, the hard-hitting message. They had a message and they needed to hear. Now when we come to chapter 6, Isaiah invites us into a scrumptious feast of delicious irony because it's not the people God has in mind. It's the junk Isaiah has in mind that needs dealing. In other words, the prophet who is called in his vocational call to reveal God's truth to others needs some revelation himself because of the junk in his life. Now, that preaches for pastors too, right? So I want us to understand that Isaiah now is on the focus. Not the people, it's Isaiah. And God will encounter Isaiah in an amazing way. Then the challenge will be, what will his response be? Because Revelation always demands a response. And the question for us as a reader is, what will our response be when we encounter God? So the way this is structured, this text, is like this. And often, again, in the Hebrew language, there's a three-fold progression, and this is what this whole chapter does, the whole chapter. This is how it goes. This is how Isaiah arranges it. First, in verses 1 through 4, there is this glorious revelation, this microburst of revelation. And then, verse 5, we have the pivot of the whole chapter. And that's the grim reality of Isaiah's situation. And then from 6 all the way to the end is God's gracious response. So if you're following along in your mind or you want some scaffolding to take some notes, it begins with this glorious revelation, moves to this grim realization, and then to a gracious response. So let's jump in. Verses 1 through 4, I'd like to read that again because it sets the tone for the whole chapter in God's glorious revelation. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple above him stood the seraphim each had six wings with two he covered his uh, face with two he covered his feet and with two he flew and one called out to another and said holy 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 is the lord of hosts literally of the armies the angelic armies The whole earth was full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house or the temple was all filled with smoke. What we need to grasp here from our cultural distance is that Isaiah tells us right up front that his vision of God is not some mystical encounter concocted in his imagination, rather It was nestled in the reality of time and space history in the 8th century. He anchors his vision of God in the 8th century under the reign of King Uzziah. You notice that. But he does a beautiful wordplay here in the original language because Uzziah is really not the king in focus. It is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's the focus. And he tells us right away, you'll notice in the text, he saw the Lord. Now, if you're like me, when you read the scriptures, your imagination sort of grabs you, right? And I I want to say to him, and and maybe I shouldn't, I don't know if it does, come on, Isaiah, give me more. I mean, doesn't this sort of brief, poetic picture say to you, come on, Isaiah, tell me more. What did you see? How did you see it? Tell me more. What's going on? But he's just focusing on A very small sliver. We know the cosmic cosmic curtain is drawn back. We see that. And we know that his emphasis is a royal throne, a royal picture. Now, in our cultural location, uh, it's kind of hard to imagine that. And uh, in our world, increasingly, there's less kingly thrones and uh, royalty, right? But if you go to Britain, and some of us have had that joy of being in Britain, and uh, I remember our family going to. Uh, England on a summer vacation, and it was amazing being in a sort of royal context. I remember going to Buckingham Palace, watching the changing of the guards. It was pretty cool. Amazing. And uh, we saw, we think, the queen going way away, so we claim we saw the queen. (laughs) But it was like, it gave us goosebumps. I mean, we're Americans, for goodness gracious. You know, it's like, it was amazing. It was a sense of awe. Or going to Westminster Abbey or some of the summer residences of the royalty where they were, you have a sense of history and a sense of awe. There's something grand about it. Or even the royal muse. It's amazing. And I think this is more what his readers would have understood in a a world where royalty was common, kings were common, and the splendor of a royal scene. And notice... The, the angelic emphasis here, it's a royal throne, it's amazing, but em- emphasizing these creatures. Did you know, the only time in all of scriptures the seraphim are mentioned, are here, at least named. I want to suggest to you that John, in his last book of the Bible, echoes this scene, but he doesn't give them names. And what stands out to us um, from Isaiah's very quick snapshot is the uniqueness of their six wings. Do you see that? Now, most of us think of wings and creatures as having a utilitarian function. That is, uh, wings get you places. But notice six wings. Do you remember why that is? Two are used to get around. Got that part. What are the other two or other four doing? Well, you notice there's a sense of the language of covering. These creatures with these other four wings are covering themselves as they are in God's presence in the radiance of his glory. And there's a sense in this language of shielding from the glory and power of God, as well as a picture of humility, shielding the face, humility, and shielding the feet. So we have here a sense of they are in God's splendor and glory, and they are shielding from the extraordinary brilliance, and they they are demonstrating humility in their service to God. Now, I'm confident, you know, uh, can't go to the bank on this one, but I'm confident that there is much more to the scene uh, that Isaiah saw. That he doesn't give us here. But his focus is not just what he saw. I want you to notice that. It's not what he saw. It's what the creature said that take the prominence in the text. In fact, if you were to make a metaphor here, in reading the original text, it would be like driving down a dark road on on a summer night with no moon and you're driving along you know what it's like when a car comes at you with full beam bright right in your face the luminosity and brightness is so great you have to go like this well this is a picture of how this text is ranged the threefold repetition of what they say is like the brightest light that makes us go oh Notice the emphasis on what these creatures say. We don't know how many there are. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of the armies, literally the angelic armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. This threefold repetition is rare, it's bright, it stuns us. When we read it, we're almost taken back. And it has a sense, if I want to suggest to you, that there is a hint, a transcendent trace of the Trinitarian God here. Not only in the threefold repetition, but in the New Testament. John, the writer John, in chapter 12, verse 41, tells us that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory here. So Isaiah is seeing God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in this glimpse of a vision. And the emphasis, the takeaway, the word that he is locked into is not God's power and all the other things we could say. If I were to ask you, what are the words you use to describe God? You might say humongous, right? But there's only one, two, and three words. I mean, It's the first one, second one, third one. It's holy, holy, holy. That's the only word they can get out. So what does holy mean? Hard word, isn't it? I mean, a lot of people think of holy as sort of a churchy pastor word. Or we have the connotation today of kind of someone who is a smug, pious, self-righteous person that's holier than thou in judgment. But that's not at all what this text is saying. The original language, this word in its structure, has the idea at its core essence of something being distinct and separate. I mean, like nothing else. If I were to ask you, it's kind of a trick question, I don't usually do this, but if I were to ask you, what is God like, what would you say? There might be words, attributes, but in a sense it's a trick question because God is not like anything or anyone we know. He is totally other. And this is this language. He is in a class of reality by himself. He is so awesome, so other. He is so radiant with unimaginable purity and power. It is as if holiness roars with the thunderous sheer force of his existence in this text. And to back it up is the poetic sense, you notice, of the smoke. And the shaking of the temple. It is as if the chariots of fire of heaven have ascend, descended into the earth, and there has been this collision between a divine creator and his earth. And sparks fly and smoke bellows. That's the thunderous roar in this text. You feel it like you would watching a movie. The language, the structure has this sense of shaking you in your seat. One of the movies I love was Lord of the Rings. And I'm um, a Tolkien fan. Maybe you are too, or maybe there's a special effects of a, you know, a great Star Trek movie. But you're in a theater, and there's this really loud sound. You like the orcs coming at you, or whatever, right? And the sound just hits your ears. But your chair, your seat, does what? It vibrates. This is what this text does to the reader. It moves it from some abstraction, and it makes a shake. That's the picture. Holiness is a big deal. It's hard to grasp. R.C. Sproul, who's a theologian, really does something nice here. Rather than getting way into the abstractions of holiness, he brings it home. And he describes holiness in terms of the prayer he said as a kid. Most of us have probably said this prayer at dinner, right? I did. Several times. What is it? God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Amen. That's a great prayer. And R.C. Sproul says this. The two virtues assigned to God in our prayer, His greatness and His goodness, are captured in the word holy. Isn't that amazing? A.W. Tozer, which uh, was a wonderful writer, a Christian writer, tackles this holiness theme in a book wonderfully titled called The Knowledge of the Holy. I recommend it to you. And this is what he says about holiness. He says, God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered, we know nothing like divine holiness. This is really important for us to grasp. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. Isaiah is telling us God is not like anything we ever understood or could grasp fully. In God's mercy, he gets a sliver, a trace of the transcendent, the fingerprints of his glory. That's it. And notice how holiness and glory make up this text. Two big words. The whole earth is filled with His glory. So what is glory? The word glory has the idea of substance and weight. And it describes the sheer force of God's thunderous existence. That's again His enormity of power and perfection. It's a picture of God's overwhelming reality. What we need to grasp in this text is when God... The creator, when he invades earth, his creation, a ravaged planet by sin and destruction, when he encounters this ravaged planet that he made once beautifully and perfect, when he encounters the puniness of Isaiah and Isaiah's wretched sin, sparks fly. That's the picture. C.S. Lewis uh, wonderfully captures the reality of approaching God's divine essence. Nobody has probably captured this better than Lewis, who lives in the sort of jet trails of the romantic poets. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this conversation about Aslan, this great king, right, the Christ figure. And the theme is often about his safety. But what we often miss is what Mrs. Beaver says after that, And she says, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either brave, braver than most, or just plain silly. In his beautiful way, C.S. Lewis takes us to this text Isaiah's knees are knocking, sparks are flying and the brilliance of God, and all his glory and beauty, and in that luminosity, that brilliance, Isaiah, like a mirror, sees his depth of depravity. Because you cannot encounter God without seeing yourself. And it's not a pretty picture. You ever had the experience, (laughs) maybe you have, when maybe you're rushing off to work or to school, and you look at the mirror quick in a low-lit room, and you go, hey, I look pretty good. Maybe you don't say that. But you know, you think I'm ready to see people. Then you go out to a bright, sunny day, right? Bright, sunny day, and as you back up in your car, you look in your mirror, and you go, oh, my. Because the sun lights up every blemish. It's like no glamour shots in the sunshine. That's the picture. When we stand before a holy, perfectly brilliant God, we cannot help but see life, ourselves without any makeup. We are exposed for our depravity and sin. Notice verse 5. This is where this text pivots. It's a grim realization. Notice the text. Remember he said, woe, woe is you, woe is you. Now it's woe is me for he says i am undone lost ruined however you want to translate that for i am a man of unclean lips and i will dwell in the midst and i dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the lord of the host eugene peterson in his paraphrase <laughs> hits this so he hits it out of the park his translation he says isaiah says this ready i am as good as dead that's it that's it isaiah cannot help when he encounters the one true God to confront his own sin and depravity, and neither can you and me. When we encounter the living God, we cannot help but see our desperate need for cleansing and forgiveness. All Isaiah can do is hit the deck and repent of his own sin and uncleanness. And that's what he does. And isn't it amazing? The dawn of God's gracious response begins to rise. And it builds all the way through the end of the chapter. God's beautiful response of grace. Isn't it amazing? The angelic creatures take this coal, this burning coal, which again is a picture of the cross to come and Christ's death on the cross, and he touches the lips of the prophet and says, You are atoned. Your sins are forgiven. Very important principle in this text, all the way through the Bible that your forgiveness, my forgiveness, is never something we can do on our own. We can never forgive ourselves. We can't be good enough. We can't be religious enough. There's nothing we can do to be forgiven. Only God can forgive us. It is only His work of grace and mercy. Forgiveness is nothing we can ever earn. It is received as a costly gift of grace. But how does Isaiah respond to God's grace? Does he say to God, God, Hey, God, I'm going to get back with you on that. Let me think about it for a while. They say, oh, I think I need to check with the philosophers and theologians and say, is this right? You say, oh, i got to check with my friends first. Or, you know, i got some real important things to do, God. I think I'm going to do that first. Or, or I, I got a lot of life to live. Just, just, I'll get back to you later. Let me, let me do some things that when I'm younger and I'm just going to go do it. No. When he encounters God, everything changes. Because when we encounter God, he changes us. He says, Here I am. I'm all yours. I'm all in. That's his response. See, if we have not encountered God, we will not be changed by God. We may learn from others about God, and that's a good thing. We may study theology. We may even go to seminary. We may study, 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 and know about God. But this doesn't change us. When we encounter the living, risen Christ, personally, that's when we are changed. Isaiah's cleansing and forgiveness leads to this burst of new life. Do you see it in the rest of the text? There is this beautiful picture of encounter and then wholehearted worship and vocational faithfulness. Do not miss the integral nature of that. Isaiah's heart has not only changed, what he does and why he does it changes. Verses 9-13, you notice that God says to him, okay, I'm calling you. His specific vocational call is to be a prophet, to be a mouthpiece of of God's message. And he says at the end of the chapter, you're going to not be very successful, Isaiah. You know, if I'm going to give you a job review down the road, you're probably going to fail because the people are not going to listen. The point is, Isaiah, Tom, I haven't called you to be successful. I've called you to be faithful and obey me in my vocation. It's amazing to me how this text connects Sunday to Monday. Isaiah is given a tough vocational call. He's not successful, but he's faithful. So what has God asked you to do? Where has God placed you? Where has He sent you? Where is He sending you? See, the vocation God calls us to, whether it's in business, education, government, media, the arts, doesn't mean we're going to be successful. There's nothing wrong with that. But God is infinitely more interested in our faithfulness. See, we talk a lot at Christ's community about how our work matters. And rightly so, this text screams of this when we encounter Christ. It changes what we do on Monday and how we do it. See, all of us are called into full-time Christian work And Dorothy Sayers says it right. The only good work well done is Christian work. Isaiah did good work, I'm sure, as a prophet. Pretty amazing scroll we have. But he wasn't viewed as being successful. He says to Isaiah, people are not going to listen to you. You're going to be a failure, but I want you to do it anyway. Wow. Wow. Sometimes God calls us to a vacation. Vocation. Just see if you're listening. That isn't very glamorous, right? And maybe writing endless papers at school. What a grind, huh? Cleaning up thousands of spills from those little kiddos every day. Dealing with difficult customers, difficult Patients. Maybe a summer job of serving coffee at Starbucks or wherever, or a corporate cubicle you go to every day. This text reminds us that God's vocational call for us does not guarantee success. It calls us to faithful obedience. Not only was Isaiah's life changed in his encounter with God, so was his work. This text brings us to this principle. When God reveals himself to us, we must respond. Revelation always leads to response. The question is, how will we respond? Will we respond in belief? Will we hit our knees to the Lord of the universe? Or will we shrug our shoulders and walk away in disbelief? See, everyone is devoted to something. The question is whether our devotion will lead to life or death. This text reminds us we cannot encounter the one true living God without being changed, radically changed. A hard heart and a humble heart, a heart of devotion or rejection cannot coexist together. This text is the great divide. So where are you this morning? Where am I? I love that this text is a text for preachers, dealing with our own stuff but it's also text for us. And you may be saying this morning, well, if I had a burning bush experience, I'd believe in God. I'd get after it. Or if I had an Isaiah encounter, I'm with you, God. Show me. But let me challenge you with a thought. And there are times when God does things like that in our life. But most of the time, God does not speak to us in a roar of thunder or a lightning bolt. It's in the quiet, gentle whisper of his holy word. Do you realize that you and I have much greater vision of God, his greatness and his holiness in this book than Isaiah ever did in his vision? We see much more than Isaiah did about who God is. But we don't encounter God on our terms. We encounter him on his terms. This text points, and we're going to see this next week and the following week, This text points to Jesus. Jesus' fingerprints are everywhere here. The one who is the king of kings who came to earth, who died on the cross, that we could be forgiven, who was risen from the dead, rose from the dead, is glorious in power, ascended to heaven, and will one day come again. He is the king of kings and Lord of lords. And he calls us to respond to him this morning. His glory is on display in the book of Hebrews. Listen to these words. This is our Lord Jesus Long ago, at many times, the Hebrew writer says, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Now listen to this. He, Jesus, incarnate, crucified, risen, ascended, glorious Lord Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's who Jesus is. And when we encounter him in his risen glory, it transforms us. You cannot encounter a God like this without it changing you and me. So the question is, have you encountered Jesus? This is what Isaiah says. This is where Isaiah takes us. Do You see His glory. John says, "We beheld His glory, glory that we got, have begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth." We saw His glory. Do you see it? And do you recognize your condition? That apart from Christ, you and I are undone. But with His grace, we have been given new life and forgiveness of sin, as we fall on our knees in repentance and trust Him as our Lord and Savior, and follow Him. Here am I, send me. So will you bow before Him today? There is no preacher, no pastor that ever unveiled this text. It is way beyond us. But it gives us a glimpse, just a sliver, of the glory of the risen Christ. Revelation always demands response. What will be your response? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the brilliance of your word. Father, for those this morning who maybe aren't even sure who Jesus is, they're just coming back to church, they're wondering, I pray, that they would feel welcome here and that you would draw them with a greater perspective of who you are. Reveal yourself to them. And for those who are maybe sitting on the fence of indecision or indifference, may they trust you, may they see you in all your glory. Lord, for all of us, grant to us a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit May we have a response in humility and joy and grace as we receive your forgiveness in your new life that we're all yours, we're all in. Here am I, send me. Here am I, send me.